This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM streaming live across the internet at nhtalkradio.com, reaching the dark chasms of the world. And presented by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for individuals with dementia, Alzheimer's, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches. Well, Congressman Hodes is on the road today in Columbus, Ohio, where there's a confab of Democrats trying to figure out how not to squander the upcoming midterm election. Uh, so we'll bring him in here in a moment. Uh, and in the uh, middle portion of the program, our special guest on the show today is U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan, who I talked with down on Capitol Hill as I traveled to D.C. this previous week. Welcome in right now, though. Congressman Hodes, how are you? Chris Ryan. I'm doing very well. I'm out in Columbus, Ohio, in the middle of the country, at a gathering. Um, uh, uh, it's called a gathering of leaders. There are people, uh, about 200 uh, people from all over the country. Um, uh, there are elected officials. There are thought leaders. There are donors. There are operatives. Uh, gathered under the auspices of the Third Way uh, think tank, which is uh, what I call a progressive centrist think tank, uh, and the New Deal, um, which is an organization that started about four years ago, three or four years ago. Um, I think it was started by former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley to focus on uh, down-ballot races and recruitment. Uh, and the gathering is focused on thinking about the future of the Democratic Party and what ought to be uh, the winning narrative and winning agenda, uh, as well as winning message that um, not only that 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 should be the uh, the new vision uh, for the Democratic Party in this digital age. So uh, it's been a fascinating. A time. Uh, there's some uh, very interesting new polling and uh, a recognition uh, of how quickly things are changing all over America in the age of acceleration. Um, some, some just tidbits of, of, of what we've learned. Uh, uh, in, in, we're in an age of acceleration, uh, and we're in a new digital age. And the nature of work, the nature of jobs, and especially what makes for opportunity has changed greatly. What Donald Trump was able to tap into was the tremendous anxiety, the deep, deep anxiety that Americans all over the country, uh, perhaps except the uber-wealthy and uber-successful, have been feeling about the future. Um, because we've gone through an extraordinary time of dislocation. Uh, I think it began certainly uh, 
decades ago as wages uh, began to slip and not keep up. Uh, globalization uh, began to erode the middle-class sense of uh, uh, the American dream and our industrial base. When you combined, uh, in economic terms, globalization with automation, and now when we look at globalization, automation, artificial intelligence, um, uh, and the flow of digital information, recognizing that 10 years ago smartphones didn't exist, and now there's 1.3 billion smartphones to which we are addicted. Um, and you look at the 9-11 uh, uh, attacks, and then the uh, Great Recession and the collapse of the banking system, all of which, uh, as specific events, eroded American sense of security on the one hand, physical security, um, and then on the other hand of their economic prospects when so many people uh, lost jobs and houses in, in, in a very short period of time from which uh, we're still recovering. Uh, there's a deep anxiety in, about the future uh, of the country. And uh, Donald Trump was able to tap into that anxiety and talk to people uh, in simple terms they understood. Uh, of course, he lied about what he was going to uh, uh, deliver. He hasn't delivered any of what he promised. Uh, he's used race to divide us. He has um, uh, offered opportunity for the wealthy, uh, not the rest of us. Um, he has not brought jobs and bowling uh, back to uh, former factory towns. Um, uh, so, I mean, putting that aside, uh, Democrats uh, really, I think, have had, uh, we, we've missed an opportunity for a long time to become the party of the future, to recognize that uh, things have to change in the digital age. And some of what we've been talking about um, uh, in, uh, in this gathering um, are uh, the ways in which this new economy has, has, has changed and what Americans want. And, and this is not just Democrats, and it's not just independents, and it's not just Republicans. Um, essentially, uh, Americans be believe that earning uh, a good uh, living, uh, and, I, and I use the words advisedly, earning a good living uh, is an important core foundational value in America. It may not be, uh, for example, in France, where, where earning a good living is, uh, you know, is something that only a quarter of the population thinks is important. In America, 75% of people think that earning a good living uh, and focusing on that word earn uh, is important. And people want the opportunity to earn a good living, and they want equality of opportunity to earn a good living. It's much more important to them, uh, at least the new, uh, some of the new work that has been done in reaching out to to ask people about this um, with interviews all over the country and extensive polling all over the country. Um, it's more important to have equality of opportunity to earn a good living than it is to address income inequality. So uh, that's really important for Democrats when we think about some of the divisions 
uh, in thought that we've been experiencing um, uh, if you if you uh, look at what we'll call the Sanders message, uh, and some people would look at a more centrist message because some of the other interesting uh, analysis is that uh, folks are really interested um, in, uh, in 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 policies that are public private partnerships to create um, the new opportunity for the future of America, not just government, which does it all. So some of what uh, has come out of the very latest research for Democrats and for independents, especially, is that there is a, an, an antipathy, or people are, are not particularly interested in having government do it all, they're looking for public-private partnerships to help create opportunity for the future. And, and people want to live in safe, healthy communities with good schools where uh, kids don't have to leave to have opportunities. One, one of the, and I'm not hitting on all the points, but one of the interesting and important issues is that in the digital age, in a digital information economy, access to capital is critical, and especially since the recession, bank lending to small businesses and in rural areas has fallen precipitously. Um, the banks were bailed out by the American taxpayer, and we could go on and on about that, um, but the lending has not come back for business development, and, by, and I don't mean just for uh, tech startups, but for all businesses and small businesses, bank lending is way down. And you combine that with the fact that uh, most uh, access to capital um, for startups and entrepreneurial ventures is focused largely in three uh, metropolitan areas, um, Boston, New York, and San Francisco. And you can see that uh, we are not investing in rural America and small towns. That's especially important for our state of New Hampshire, uh, which is essentially a rural, small-town state. Our biggest city is 100,000 people, and if you take a look in Manchester, there are there's startup activity, there's entrepreneurial activity. Dean Kamen has been a longtime entrepreneur. He started an important new business there. Uh, Dine is there. There are other things happening, but you look around, uh, the more rural areas, and you don't find the same kind of investment in entrepreneurial activity as you do, say, in Manchester and Portsmouth. And that's just examples to hit at home. So that's going to be really important to, to address. But ultimately, uh, it's this issue of opportunity and an equal opportunity for all persons, wherever they are, everyone, everywhere, in America should have an equal opportunity to earn a good living, live in a safe community, uh, go to a good school, uh, and be able to uh, keep their kids nearby and, and, and enjoy, uh, enjoy the, the new American dream. And that may mean very different kinds of jobs. A lot of people are working at home. A lot of people have multiple jobs. A lot of people um, uh, will change jobs frequently in their lives. So our healthcare system really needs to reflect that we're not an old-fashioned employer-based economy in the same way we were and adapt 
the interesting uh, st uh, statistic and some of the information we've heard uh, recently uh, is that most people want to fix the Affordable Care Act rather than simply transition immediately to Medicare for all. Uh, people still want choice. And again, uh, they say, let's try the public-private partnership uh, to make things work. So it's been a fascinating time. I've given you some of the kind of top lines of what we're working on. Uh, I'm optimistic and impressed. It's it's interesting, um, you know, where the Democratic Party goes from here. And there's some conventional, you know, isn't that just being the other party in the era of Trump is going to be um, enough for Democrats to have success in the midterm elections and um, perhaps beyond. But, you know, that is not uh, really true, in my view. It's going to be based yeah. upon what happens yeah. in in, in various races and based upon those conditions, and you're also not maximizing your success. I think you make a really good point about where the Democratic Party goes. I don't think that um, you know individuals in the middle, whether they're independents or um, Democratic-leaning independents or Republican-leaning independents, want to see the Democratic Party move so far to the left that it becomes just the party of big government. So I think that the the private par uh, public partnerships that you're describing, and you mentioned Ohio, and two individuals who I've talked with from uh, from Ohio who are Democrats, Sherrod Brown and Tim Ryan, and both of them note the fact that it is very important that Democrats. Um, also become the party of uh, business and supporting business, particularly small businesses. So the concern, I think, if you're a, uh, a Democrat and you want to see a strong future for your party, is that the party gets moved too far to the left and becomes a party of strictly uh, government programs. And so I think a lot of the things you're describing are very important uh, for the Democratic Party moving forward. Let me make two quick points because I know we're this, we don't have too much time left in this segment, and, uh, and I know I'm being uncharacteristically serious about all this, but it's a serious issue. Uh, Democrats have suffered over, uh, over a longer period of time than we'd like to think of uh, electoral losses up and down the ticket, uh, governorship, legis state legislators, legislatures, uh, the United States Congress, and we need to reverse that um, because I believe that the democratic uh, values and democratic agenda are the American agenda. A reporter asked me the other day, what about the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party? And I said, look, we, have, we know what our soul is. We know what our values are. Um, and that value, that those values really center around an equality of opportunity. I, I said that before I came to the conference, and it's been confirmed here. And I said, but, and I said exactly what you said, which is one of our big challenges is understanding we're in a regulated capital market economy. Uh, Democrats uh, have not embraced uh, that in the way we can and should, because uh, I think we've got an argument to make to the business community, uh, large and small, that a healthy, uh, healthy population, a well-educated population, which has the skills and the lifelong opportunities in education uh, for training and retraining, um, uh, and a happy, productive workforce which feels it's treated fairly um, with such things like regional minimum wages that are adaptable to every region. All of that is good for business and good for the business community uh, and good for the future of America. 
So, you know, I, I, I've always kind of characterized myself as a progressive centrist um, because I, 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 I'm, I, I hope I'm realistic about the challenges that uh, our economy faces, which really people care about. And in order to be strong in the world, we need a strong, healthy population and a strong economy. Uh, we need leaders who understand that it's cooperation, not aggression, that lead to security. And America is great when America is good. Um, and I think that there is a way forward for Democrats. I think people are longing for bold vision, uh, new ideas that emphasize uh, what works in America uh, without going to, too far to either extreme. And uh, I believe the Democratic Party and Democrats will come back. We're, I'm hoping to be able to help develop a, a workable and coherent economic agenda for the country and deliver a, a, an emotionally resonant message and narrative uh, and then follow it up by governance that, uh, that, that is truthful and honest and has integrity um, and uh, recognizes uh, that the American dream uh, is not dead and that uh, working together we can, fi- we, can, we, can, we can find it again. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes. I am Chris Ryan, a congressman on the road today in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, of course, uh, the, the big issue continues to be the meeting between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. Uh, Senator Shaheen wants the uh, interpreter, who, the American interpreter, who is um, a uh, State Department employee, to uh, testify in front of uh, Congress and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. She told me that she wants it to take place um, it, perhaps both in private and in public because of the nature of the discussion, but that should take place. And uh, Senator Hassan also upset about uh, what took place uh, with uh, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. My conversation with Senator Hassan on Capitol Hill from earlier this week. We return. Paul, enjoy your time in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and uh, we'll catch up with you next week. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you all. Bye-bye. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM. You can check it out online at nhtalkradio.com, where you can listen live or also find previous uh, performances, if we want to refer to it as that, of Off the Record and Paul Hodes. Um, And uh, we want to remind you that uh, Off the Record is presented by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for individuals living with dementia, Alzheimer's, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches. Phone number... 224-9111. More of Off the Record with Paul Hodes as uh, I sat down with Senator Hassan. We'll hear that interview when we return after this. Welcome back. This is Off the Record without Paul Hodes today. Well, at least sort of without Paul Hodes. We heard from him in the previous segment of the program, but he is on the road at a Democratic conclave. will not make any uh, sort of jokes in regards to that, although I am uh, definitely uh, enticed to do so. Uh, but he is not here today. Uh, I was on Capitol Hill this past week for the New Hampshire Now program, and one of the conversations we had was with U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan. This conversation came the morning after the Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki, Finland, and uh, this was the immediate reaction to that from Senator Hassan. 
So we are on Capitol Hill with U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan and the fallout uh, from yesterday's meeting in Helsinki uh, between President Trump and uh, President Putin has been enormous. It has been uh, pretty much across uh, party lines. I think that there is just uh, a nature of individuals being stunned, dismayed, uh, extremely disappointed. I thought Senator Sass was great in saying that uh, the American brand was damaged. I thought it was bigger obviously, than just, you know, how President Trump performed. It was about the presidency. It was about our, our country. As we welcome in U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan. First segment here, we're going to focus uh, specifically on uh, the meeting between Vladimir Putin and uh, President Trump, what that means, and then second, uh, more on domestic policy. Thanks for having me. And um, what were your takeaways? Well, I agree with Senator John McCain, who said that he thought uh, President Trump's behavior yesterday was uh, one of the worst performances by a United States president in John McCain's memory. I certainly agree with that. What was so damaging about it in in your view? I mean, there were a lot of different things that were at play, but I thought first and foremost that you have an American president who has just seen his own Justice Department indict uh, 12 individuals, Russian uh, military intelligence figures, for breaking into the DNC, as well as um, uh, John Podesta's uh, email account, in essence, a cyber Watergate type of situation, but from his own Justice Department. Um, and you have repeated uh, instances in which his own intelligence agencies have indicated that um, you know, this took place. And the president decided to side with with Vladimir Putin. Why do you think that is? Our intelligence agencies unanimously believe that Russia interfered with our 2016 elections. Then we see an indictment from the Justice Department going into great detail, naming the 12 Russian agents who did this, their connection to the Russian government. It's very clear that they work for the Russian government. Precisely how they went about interfering with our elections. And despite that overwhelming evidence, Donald Trump chose yesterday to stand with Russia rather than the United States intelligence community. He put his own interests before those of our country. And there is not a single explanation for that that reflects well on Donald Trump. That, to me, is the biggest piece here, is that um, an American president is supposed to, first and foremost, I mean, this seems like it's, you know, kind of grade school type stuff, but to stand up for America. and Especially overseas. Especially overseas and especially side by side with an, an adversary. And that is the role of the president of the United States, uh, regardless of how they may feel personally, uh, regardless of how they may feel, um, you know, about various aspects of things. The first and foremost role of the president is to do what's best for America. That's exactly right. And yesterday, uh, the president of the United States decided to say to the world that he was siding with Russia. And let's be very clear, this is not just about Russia's behavior meddling with our elections. Russia is behind the poisoning of people in England. They annexed Crimea. They interfered and have attacked, uh, performed cyber attacks on the Ukraine. Russia is a bad actor. 
Vladimir Putin is a murderer and a dictator, and our president decided to stand with him and with Russia, again, over the people and interests of the United States of America, and directly, essentially rebuking the brave men and women of our intelligence community who put their lives on the line for us every day. It is outrageous, and it has left many of us stunned, uh, and it's hard to find words to describe the feeling. I just never thought I would see the day when an American president traveled abroad, insulted our allies, as Donald Trump did last week, undermined our most important and significant and historic alliance, NATO, an alliance that we spearheaded and formed after World War II, that he would do that and then affirmatively stand with Russia uh, is just uh, something I, you know, I, I never thought would happen, and it is still very hard to absorb. I think that that's really an important and significant point. And when you look and consider what's taking place, um, and there's really no reason for it, particularly in regards to our alliances with, uh, with NATO, um, to stand side by side with, with Russia. I mean, do you start to wonder what the president's intentions are and you know, what his um, true reasoning and rationale is for doing these types of things? Because as you mentioned, he is undermining America, <clears throat> excuse me, America's longest you know, uh, allies um, and what appears to be our foreign policy interests. And what is you know, Congress's role, A, in regards to that, and, and B, uh, in regards to um, pushing forth what, what they believe that our foreign policy um, guidelines and interests should be? Well, so first of all, what's very clear is that we have to do everything we can to protect the special prosecutor's investigation. Uh, special Prosecutor Mueller has to be able to follow the facts wherever they lead him. And so one of the things Congress could do was is pass uh, a law that would protect that investigation and make sure that it isn't interfered with. Uh, we could also take steps to impose further sanctions on Russia. Uh, and we also need to continue to communicate to our allies that we support NATO, that we believe in it, and that we will continue the partnership that has been so important to our country's national security since World War II. That's U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan joining us here on Capitol Hill. Senator Merkley said that he believes that um, Russia has damaging information on, and Vladimir Putin has damaging information on President Trump, something equivalent to what we um, you know, heard about in the, the Steele report about there being a videotape or something of that nature. He thought something pretty close to that. Um, with each of these instances where it appears that for Donald Trump's own self-preservation, it appears uh, that he should distance himself from Vladimir Putin or not, um, you know, in essence, uh, act as a ventriloquist dummy for the, uh, the Russian president, he doesn't do so. Does that <clears throat> lead you to believe that there is some sort of there there in regards to um, Vladimir Putin and his relationship with Trump? The fact that we are even asking the question about whether... Russia has damaging information on the President of the United States is extraordinary. I just never thought I would see the day where we had to seriously ask that question.
But do you think there is some when when all is said and done? Do you believe that that Robert Mueller um, is going to find out that um, you know there is something going on? And is there a concern that the investigation is taking this long, given you know what we saw that um, there is something unseemly that is that appears to be going on? First of all, it's absolutely essential that we protect. Robert Mueller and his independence. We have to let the special prosecutor follow these facts and find out what's there. So I will continue to support efforts to protect that investigation. Uh, we have to see where these facts uh, uh, lead us, and that's going to continue to be incredibly important. Is there more of a sense of urgency um, in that, given what we saw yesterday? Well, certainly, I think. There is a sense of urgency. You have seen the special prosecutor uh, in just a little over a year uh, come back with now somewhere over 25 indictments, five guilty pleas. Uh, experts in this field tell us that this has actually been a, re a productive um, and effective investigation to date to have that kind of results. Uh, but we also just need to make sure that Special Prosecutor Mueller has the tools he needs and the independence he needs to follow the facts. And sometimes that takes time. So what I'm interested in is getting to the truth here. And I know uh, from all indications that the special prosecutor wants to get this done as effectively as possible. I think we all feel a sense of urgency. But we also know that this investigation has to be done in the right way and shouldn't follow any predetermined conclusions, but just follow the facts. In conclusion on this, um, obviously, you know, hearing from people in New Hampshire and across you know, the country in regards to this, there is a real concern about um, the president engaging in meetings uh, like that moving forward. And obviously, there were the dam most damaging elements were the press conference and the tweets and the undermining of the intelligence agency. But there was also a two-hour meeting which took place where there was no one except for Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, and interpreters, and, and no one really knows what took place during the course of, of that meeting. When you look at the Constitution, is there, outside of... Um, no impeachment uh, and conviction of the Senate. Is there any way for Congress to limit the ability of the president to act on behalf of the, I mean, this is crazy stuff, but to, to act on behalf of the American people when there's a feeling that he is not acting on behalf of, uh, of the American people, and that is a prevailing sense? Again, the fact that we're actually having to have this discussion is incredibly concerning. Uh, what happened yesterday was that uh, Donald Trump was essentially alone with Vladimir Putin, a trained and experienced KGB agent uh, who has had decades of experience assessing uh, and profiling people and manipulating them. And um, I am very concerned that the president chose to meet with Mr. Putin for that length of time, usually um, a one-on-one -on -one meeting like that is uh, reserved uh, for uh, special circumstances after a great deal of progress is made, after you uh, have a, a more formal meeting with other people where you actually get results for your country. Uh, none of that happened yesterday, and I think that's also why so many of us are so concerned about what Donald Trump did yesterday 
choosing Russia over the United States. That is U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes. I am Chris Ryan filling in for Paul for this segment of the program. When we return more of my conversation with Maggie Hassan on Capitol Hill. Welcome back. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes. Off the Record presented by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for individuals with dementia, Alzheimer's, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches. Phone number 224-9111. Now part two of my conversation with Maggie Hassan on Capitol Hill. Paul on the road to the Democratic Conclave at in Columbus, Ohio. So uh, the, we are uh, listening to my conversation with Maggie Hassan here on the program today. Continue with Senator Maggie Hassan, her office here on Capitol Hill, and we're going to focus here on domestic policy. I want to talk about the opioid crisis in New Hampshire. $23 million slotted to come to the Granite State for spending in this fiscal year. There has obviously been issues in regards to the Farnham Center and others concerned about Medicaid reimbursement rates and having to do with state government. Um, what can you tell us about how that money is going to be spent, and is it going to be Health and Human Services who are going to be uh, determining where it goes? So first of all, um, everywhere I go in New Hampshire, uh, every weekend that I'm home, the opioid crisis continues to be the thing that is most on people's minds. Uh, it's affecting everybody from all walks of life. It's our biggest public health and safety challenge. And so I um, was... Um, gratified when the administration, uh, after um, conversations between me and Senator Shaheen and our delegation, uh, decided to change the formula for distributing dollars to states to help combat the opioid crisis. We have been pushing now for quite some time, uh, going back even to when I was governor, to tell the federal government that we needed to distribute the money according to mortality rates from the opioid crisis, not just according to population. So the additional $22.9 million that we got is a significant increase and uh, one that is just for this fiscal year, which means we need to get it out the door uh, by October 1st. What will happen next is that the State Department of Health and Human Services needs to uh, put together an application, essentially a plan, for how it will spend these dollars. And I know that next week the State Department of Health and Human Services is having a meeting so that providers and others can have a public discussion about how best to shape that plan and how best to spend that money. And uh, that really is appropriate. We need to make sure that people on the front lines are really having input about how best to deploy these dollars. Uh, We know uh, that we need more treatment capacity, more treatment workforce. Uh, We know we need more prevention and recovery services as well. Um, And so, again, this is going to really come down to the people of New Hampshire coming together um, and helping develop that plan so that the federal government will have confidence that the money will be well spent. And I'm, I'm confident that we'll be able to do that. Long-term um, concerns, obviously, in regards to uh, the solvency of Social Security, uh, Medicare, um, and Medicaid as a whole. Um, what have you seen down here in regards to uh, concerns about that. And you've talked, obviously, about, you know, the need for expansion of Social Security um, and the, the benefits there. What do you, do you see anything happening on that at all, particularly in regards to, you know, the tax reform uh, bill, which uh, 
increases spending in the long term and will create um, potential shortfalls uh, in regards to uh, those entitlement programs? Look, we know we have to make sure that people who retire in this country get the benefits that they've earned and that they deserve. And so we need to shore up the Social Security system. We need to make sure that Medicare is strengthened. Um, what we saw last summer, and we've really seen since the beginning of this administration, is that the American people have come forward and let their elected representatives know how important health care is to them, for instance. Last year in particular, not only did people stand up to say that they wanted to improve the Affordable Care Act, not repeal it, they also stood up and really said how important, for instance, the Medicaid program is uh, to their loved ones in nursing homes, to people with disabilities, to people who are working but can't afford, because of their pay scale, um, private insurance. So the people of this country know how important it is. That's why um, it was so disappointing to see the Republican majority pass this tax cut, which really isn't uh, thoughtful tax reform. Uh, lots of us on the Democratic side of the aisle made clear to our Republican colleagues we would be happy to work on constructive tax reform, closing loopholes, making the system more fair, um, perhaps, and you know, doing a, a uh, corporate tax reduction in the right way, closing loopholes. But instead, what we saw was a big giveaway to the wealthiest individuals and big corporate special interests at the expense of working people. So that under this tax plan, uh, Granite Staters who earn less than $75,000 a year over time are going to see a tax increase. Meanwhile, it blew an over over a trillion dollar hole in the deficit. And I am concerned uh, that some on the far right are going to use that as an excuse to then say we have to cut Medicaid, Social Security, and Medicare so critically important to our safety net at the same time uh, that we are uh, seeing attempts by this administration to say that things like uh, protections for people with pre-existing conditions, uh, protections that keep insurance companies from discriminating against sick people and denying them mm -hmm. coverage should be gutted. So we've got a lot of work to do uh, to get people to focus again on strengthening and um, making more uh, financially uh, stable over the long term um, Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, uh, it's been made more difficult by the tax cut. Healthcare as a whole, obviously there was the, the great healthcare uh, debate which, which took place and uh, nothing uh, came of that. Um, and since then we have seen a gutting of the Affordable Care Act via executive orders and um, costs rising. And we've seen you know, so many of these issues in immigration, and we've seen obviously the, um, you know, the brunt of, of that which has taken place down in Texas and a lack of comprehensive immigration reform and sensible immigration reform. Healthcare seems to be going in the same direction as immigration, where um, there, <clears throat> there was nothing able to be accomplished. And as a result, the current uh, Affordable Care Act is dissipating. Individuals are suffering as a result of that. Um, is that is is that basically just going to kind of wither away until there is a, a new Congress and a new president and a, a Medicare for all type of uh, debate? Or where do you see health care going? Because as people continue to you know get hurt, um, it seems that there's this inaction. You know, in our help committee, health, education, labor, and pensions that I sit on, uh, we had come together and developed bipartisan legislation that would have stabilized. 
uh, health insurance coverage and costs across the country, especially in those areas where there weren't a lot of providers. Uh, we came together to try to address uh, some of the other issues for uh, middle-class Americans who found themselves, you know, hitting this coverage cliff, uh, mm -hmm. this cost cliff under the Affordable Care Act. Unfortunately, um, the administration's actions uh, to refuse to engage in these discussions has really uh, hamstrung us in this regard. And I am very concerned. We need to stabilize the insurance market. We need to protect people who are sick so that insurance companies can't deny them coverage, something the administration is trying to uh, undo. Um, and we need to come together and listen to our constituents and address things like comprehensive immigration reform. We need to secure our borders. Well, we, briefly on that, do you see any, any will at all to address it? Because you, you look at what took place, and obviously there's the aspect of reuniting the families and so forth. But as a whole, um, the immigration system needs to be tackled, legal immigration, all different aspects of it. But it doesn't seem like, you know, it's it's tinkering around the edges. The dreamers, all these are things are important, but the the key aspects never seem to get um, solved. In 2013, the United States Senate came together across party lines and passed comprehensive immigration reform. The House refused to take it up. Uh, we believe that there are bipartisan efforts in the House that if the Speaker would take up, could pass the House. Uh, I believe there is bipartisan support for comprehensive immigration reform among some senators right now, and certainly as part of the Common Sense Coalition that met to help reopen the government back in February. I've heard from my colleagues uh, on both sides of the aisle that there is a lot of concern around this issue and a lot of willingness to work constructively. What we have been missing is a partner in the White House who would be willing to actually think comprehensively about this and acknowledge that it is possible to secure our borders while living up to our values as Americans. The notion that we would separate children from their parents at the border is abhorrent. It is wrong. It does not stand for who we are. And we could be coming together and not only addressing that and not only addressing DACA, but coming together to secure our borders in smart ways. Uh, I sit on Homeland Security as well. Um, our first job as government is to keep our people safe. Uh, but we also are Americans because of the values we share, and we cannot forget that. As always, great to see you. Great to see you. That is U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes. Paul will be back with you next week on the program. He is out in Columbus, Ohio this week uh, and uh, unavailable for this segment of the program. I want to let you know that the Off the Record is presented by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for individuals with dementia, Alzheimer's, or the forms of memory impairment. Join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches. Phone number 224-9111. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM and streamed live on the internet at nhtalkradio.com. You can check out past episodes 
of Off the Record at nhtalkradio.com, in addition to our other shows here on WKXL, including my uh, on New Hampshire Now program and also uh, on background with myself and Paul Steinhauser and The Life with Matt Bonner, presented by Concord Orthopedics. It's all available at nhtalkradio.com. Paul will be back with you next week on the program. The uh, Off the Record, of course, presented by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for individuals with dementia, Alzheimer's, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches. Phone number 224-9111. Here on this edition of the show today, my conversation down in Washington, D.C. with United States Senator Maggie Hassan. And that seems to be a prevailing feeling on the Hill that um, immigration reform could happen, but... Um, it's not going to happen uh, as a result of uh, Republican leadership not allowing votes to get to the floor. And to me, you know, that's one of the big problems, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, is the obstruction that takes place. Um, you know, let votes take place. Let ha- let us have up and down votes on uh, various legislation. Um you know that's a big difference, obviously, between what happens at the state house and what happens uh, in Washington D.C. Is that um, there are bills there, there are bills that have been written, but um, it is extremely limited the amount of legislation that gets voted upon by the United States Senate or the U.S. House of Representatives. Anyway, this is off the record with Paul Hodes. Paul, we'll be back with you next week on the program. I am Chris Ryan. Appreciate you uh, joining us for the show. Today, to check out past episodes of Off the Record with Paul Hodes, we encourage you to uh, head to our website, nhtalkradio.com. I am Chris Ryan. Thanks so much for joining us for Off the Record. Have a great weekend, everybody.